This morning we'll be reading um, in the book of John, John chapter 1, 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he became the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if I were to say to you the line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you would probably be familiar with that, and many of you would be able to tell me where that came from. It's from Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It's the opening line of that book. And you know, opening lines of literature can stick with us. They can become instantly memorable. Like, for example, the three-word introduction, call me Ishmael, to Moby Dick. Or there is perhaps my favorite introduction to any book that's been written, and it goes like this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And that is the opening of C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. See, opening lines can become instantly memorable and stick with us. But there is no more lasting or impactful opening line of anything that's ever been written than this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We just read that earlier in our service. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's from the opening of the book of Genesis, the opening of the Bible, the most well-known introduction in human history. And so then you know what it's like when, uh, when, when someone's saying something, one of your friends would have saying something, and then you know exactly where they're going with it. And so you jump in and you're gonna fill in the blank and you're gonna kind of say it with them because you wanna just make it clear, I, I know where you're going. So then you also know the embarrassment of being wrong when you say something different than what they're saying. And then you kind of 
kind of lean back and you kind of feel like an idiot for just saying that. And, and man, it's embarrassing. And so here, here we come to the opening of the Gospel of John. And you say, hey, I know where he's going. In the beginning. You say, I, I got this. Genesis on the brain. I know where he's going. In the beginning was the word. And that's not what we expected. And it's everything is different. And so we are introduced in the opening of this gospel account with the familiar and yet something new. And so I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to John in chapter one, verse one. We're beginning this morning a study on the gospel of John that will walk through this magnificent book and it will take us a little while to do it, but I trust that it will be beneficial as we do. And John actually tells us his purpose for writing this book at the end of it. At the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 20, he says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is why John writes this book. John does not write this primarily as a biography. Now, let's be clear, everything that he records in this book is true history, but his aim is not primarily biographical, it is apologetic. In other words, he has an intended purpose in it, and he says, I want you to believe that this Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I want you, through faith in him, to experience the life that is found in him. That's why John writes this. See, Luke begins with his kind of historical credentials. He's kind of sharing, okay, here, here's, here's why I'm qualified to write these things. Matthew begins by tracing the lineage of Jesus throughout and showing how this is a historical faith, that Jesus came as a real man at a real point in history. And John does not uh, deny any of that as true history, but he begins in a different spot. He begins before the beginning. You look about how, how the gospel accounts begin. Matthew and Luke begin leading up to and including the birth of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And then you begin to see as you go on, this is no mere man. Mark just skips that entirely and jumps right into uh, Jesus as an adult doing ministry around the area and says, okay, let, let, let's, let's introduce you to who this guy is. John he will give an account of the birth of Jesus. We'll see that next week. It's different than the others, but he will talk about that. But nonetheless, John begins where? In the beginning. Because he wants you and I to know exactly who this Jesus is that we are talking about. In fact, the name Jesus doesn't appear in our text today. It doesn't appear in next week's text either. In three weeks, in two weeks from today, we'll get there where we actually see this man identified as Jesus. But let me tell you that the, the man incarnate in human flesh walking along in, in this book is the one testified about in the beginning, right here. In the beginning was the Word. And there are five truths about the Word that I want us to see this morning. And there is something in the Gospel of John for all of us. See, if John's intended purpose is that we would believe in Christ and through believing in him have life in his name, if that's his purpose, then there is something in here for all of us, including for those who do not trust in Jesus and have never read the Gospel of John. There is something here, and John wants you to know, believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And for all of us, for those who have, been, who have been trusting in Jesus and are trusting in Jesus and have read the Gospel of John who knows how many times, my prayer, my hope as we go through this series is that we are introduced to Christ in ways that we never even imagined, that we would see him as greater and bigger than we possibly dreamed. 
there's a a moment in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia and Prince Caspian where the heroes are going about their their journeys and certainly Aslan, the great lion, is working, but they don't see him. So many of the characters begin thinking, well, he's not really there. And Lucy believes, she, she, she keeps seeing glimpses of Aslan. She, she believes that he's, he's really there, he's really doing something. And finally, she comes to actually see that great lion, and she talks with him. And when she sees him, she mentions that he is bigger. And he says, no, it's because you are older, little one. And she's confused. He says, well, wait, wait, you mean you're not really bigger? And she, he goes, no, I'm not. But every year that you grow, you will find me to be bigger. And friends, that's true when it comes to Jesus. He does not change or grow. But the more that we come to know him and love him, the bigger he will appear, the greater he will appear in our hearts and in our lives. So my hope is that we see that Jesus is bigger than we ever imagined he really is. He's bigger than our hopes and than our fears. He's bigger than whatever obstacles you might be facing in life right now. He is bigger than all of that. So believe in him and experience the life that is found in his name. That is the point of the Gospel of John. So we begin, in the beginning was the Word, and there's five truths I want us to see about the Word this morning. And there's many things that I think we can learn from this text, and there's many ways I think this text can relate to our lives in some very very appropriate, significant ways. And yet, there is one primary application of this passage, and I'll tell it to you right up front. See, application is not simply what we do, It is also what we think, feel, believe, love, and desire. And there are passages in scripture in which the primary intended application is simply behold your God and worship him. And so I trust there's much in here that we can learn from and much in here that we can take away, but make no mistake, the primary aim of this passage, of this prologue to John's gospel is to say, behold your God, look at who he is and bow before him in worship. So who is the word? Who is the word? Pick it up in John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So now, you jump back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one on the brain. We just went through a study in Genesis chapter one and in the following chapters in the fall. And you say, okay, well, in the beginning, this word was with God. And you say, where was he? I didn't see him in Genesis chapter one. And this is why it's appropriate for that we're just coming off of a study in Genesis because if you remember, uh, we, we kind of mentioned it, didn't go too deep into it, but we mentioned it, but do you remember how God creates? By speaking. God creates by his word. And God said, and it was so. In other words, when God acts, he does so by his word. When God creates, he does so by his word. And what we learn here in John 1 is that this word is a person. It's not simply a force emerging from the mouth of God. He's a person. But God always acts, he always creates by his word. That's the testimony of scripture. So he was there with God in the beginning. But it goes even deeper than that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. This moves it from being a mere acquaintance who just kind of sits there and and kind of, we're just hanging out here, kind of observing. No, he is God. First truth we learn about the word is that he is God. And notice, in such succinct fashion, what the apostle John is able to articulate through the Holy Spirit here. He says he is God, and he is with God. 
See, Christians believe that we worship one God in three persons, a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, so that we can truly say that the Son of God is God and he is with God at the same time. That's what we believe. So, so John is able to articulate that in just a few words to say he is God and he is with God. And that's what we believe. And that this God creates by his word. See, John, from the very beginning of this gospel account, wants you to know who this Jesus is as he is walking around on the earth. He is the incarnate God. The one who is with God in the beginning, the one who is God himself, here with us. John doesn't want that to be a secret. He doesn't want you to have to wait to figure that one out. He's not afraid about spoilers ruining the rest of the narrative. He wants you to know who Jesus is right from the start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And of course, if he's in the beginning with God, then it also follows that he is all, if he is also God, then he is the creator. The second truth we learn about the Word is that he is the creator. We see this in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the word, this God, is the creator of all things. That's who he is. And God creates by his word. The psalmist declares this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. 1 Corinthians 8 says this about Jesus. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You say, how is it that we today have life and breath through him? Colossians 1 contains the same theme. It says, all things were created through him and for him. You say, how do we exist? Through him. Why do we exist? For him. Hebrews chapter one says the same thing. It says, through him also, God created the world. So this word is the agent of creation by which all things are made. And it might appear that John is just kind of maybe repeating the same thought twice. So all things are made through him, nothing is made apart from him. You say, well, that's the same point, same thought, right? I think there's a slight difference here that helps us give a more comprehensive view of what it means that the word is creator. So uh, all things are made through him. We just saw that. Nothing was made without him which means that every single thing that was created, every single being that was created, was created by him. Which would mean that the word himself is uncreated. Because think about it, right, 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 logically. If the word were created, he would have had to be created by something else apart from himself. So in other words, John is introducing you to the fact that this word, this God, is the uncreated creator of all things. And this is vitally important for us to realize because Christians believe that Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, was not created nor made, but eternally existent as God. There have been uh, heresies that have arisen throughout the history of the church that have suggested that Jesus is the first and the greatest being made by God. But the Bible refutes that, and the Bible says, no, no, Jesus is not created. He is the creator, unmade. For example, there are some who would say, well, Jesus was just a good person. 
did a lot of good things. Even those who would say Jesus is kind of like God or he's kind of a demigod who, who's kind of the greatest being created by God and maybe even the creator of, uh, you know, but kind of just one step beneath God himself because he's made. So let's say a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they're very friendly and they want to talk with you and, and share with you the truth of, of, of scriptures as they see it and the truth of God as they believe it. They might well take you to John chapter one, verse one. And they might show you how in their Bibles it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. And they will tell you that in the Greek that there's a, there's a little clause that, that suggests it should be a God. So in other words, the word is kind of a God, kind of like him, but he's not, the, he's not actually the creator God who is unmade. And listen, I'll tell you that from the Greek that we don't need to conclude that from the Greek, but you don't need to know the Greek to know that. Here's why, take him to verse three. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. So then ask, so then how was he created? Who made this word? Well, it must have been you know, so, some, someone else. Well, if that's the case, then verse three is actually lying because nothing was made apart from him, which means he has no origins. He is uncreated, that's the point. The Lord Jesus is the uncreated creator of all things. Which also means that as he walks upon the earth, he holds the authority of the creator of all things. And we need to know this. John wants us to know this. That when the word became flesh, he dwelt in a body that he had made for himself. When the word walked upon the earth, he walked upon the dust that he had formed. And when the word spoke to other people around him, he spoke to those whose very breath, that instant, was being granted to them by himself. He is the creator of all things. And that means he speaks as one who has authority. See, Jesus did not need to read the owner's manual about being human. He made it. He wrote it. If you think when... Uh, uh, when Steve Jobs was still alive, if he were to see you kind of sitting around on your phone and you're trying to like figure out how to, how to do this whole thing and you know, the, the whole snap face and whatever it is what these kids are doing these days and all that, like whatever that is, that was intentional by the way, whatever it is that these kids are doing, you're like, how do, I, how do I do this? And if Steve Jobs were to walk up to you and tell you, hey, can I give you a few tips on how to use that better? You would be incredibly arrogant to say, nope, I got it all on my own. I figured it out. I mean, here's the guy who dreamed up the whole thing saying, let me, let me help you. And you're saying, no, I'm fine. And so when we encounter Jesus throughout the Gospels, we will read things from Jesus that seem rather striking to our natural proclivities, that seem that they are counterintuitive to the human way of flourishing, that seem like they are intended to rob us of joy and not lead us to greater joy. And when we read those statements, we need to know that they are uttered by the one who made all things and knows best about how we are to live as human beings. John wants us to know that from the very beginning so that when we, when we are confronted with these things throughout the rest of the book, we are not surprised by them, but instead we receive them humbly and say, okay, well, I guess Jesus knows best. I guess he knows best. He is God. He is the creator and he is himself life. See, the words of Jesus are intended to lead us to deeper flourishing in life, not rob us of it. The words of Jesus, the witness of Jesus is intended to give us life, not take it from us. To give us joy, not rob us of it. The word is the life. We see this in verse four. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
See, this one, this word has always been alive. He has no beginning. And see, so, so, some people would suggest that how, how did the universe come to be? How was the universe created? By some impersonal force, something just kind of happened and, and here we are. And the Bible suggests that the origins of the universe rest in the one who is eternally alive, who has made all things. The word that John uses here for the word is very interesting. It's the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, which was a term in Greek philosophy that was, uh, let's, let's put it in our, some of our modern terms, it was the, an attempt to, to understand what's the absolute reality, what's the absolute truth, what's at the heart, the center of reality, what's at the center of this truth, that's the logos. And so you say, well, well how does that play out in our lives today? Now there's some of you, and I, I would say this is particularly true of those of you who are younger in here, and I'll let you determine who that is. And uh, th- those of you who are younger, let me, let me say to you that you are truly some of the most morally driven people in this entire room. You care very deeply about right and wrong. You care very deeply when you see people being mistreated. You care very deeply that people are treated well and rightly. You have you're very strong morals and you're driven by them. And yet, let me also suggest that it's perhaps true that you feel a hesitation to impose those same morals upon other people across cultures and times. Because a lot of this is, is more relative and we can't come so firmly and, and say this. And so you say, well, how, how then do we know it's true? Well, it, it's self-evident. And I would suggest to you that the testimony of human history suggests that these truths are not self-evident. And further, I would suggest to you that if we suggest that these are self-evident, they must be true in all places and all times. In other words, there are people today who live as if there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute center of reality. There is no logos. And so there are others who recognize that and say, well, I, I don't believe that. I think there is some more kind of concrete grounding. It's not all relativist. And so perhaps this, is, this will resonate with some of you who are older. And again, I leave it to you to determine who that is. But you say, well, there, there is a clear, absolute truth. There is real reality. And so you seek to live your life by a set of principles that you think are, are, are binding on the universe in all places and all times. And you think these are the things we ought to live by. And so whether you're here and you don't really believe there is a logos, an absolute truth, or you're here and you believe there is a logos and you're trying to live according to that standard, here's what the Bible confronts us with. It says the Logos is not some impersonal force. The Logos is a person. The Logos is not a set of principles to live by, but a person to know. And that changes everything about how we think the universe works. That changes everything about how we think reality itself functions. Because at the center of reality, at the center of human existence, at the center of our universe, there is a person who can be known. Three persons, really, the Trinity. But there's a personal God who desires to be known. Friends, if you wonder why Christians talk about uh, having a relationship with God, this is why. We do not believe you can be right with God by a set of principles or by following some set moral standard. We do believe that uh, it, it goes better for us to live according to these principles, but we don't believe that you can be right with God in that, but that there is a God who can be known and desires to be known, and that is why we have John chapter one, because he wants us to know him. 
That is why he gives us his word, both the word Christ and also his word here. That's why he gives it to us, so that we can know him. At the center of our universe is a God who can be known and desires to be known. And only when we know him can we truly have life. See, John writes these things, that you would believe in the Christ, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. Later, we'll hear that Jesus says that he came, that you may have life and to have it abundantly. And the reason he can say that is because he says he is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, the Bible says that if you are not connected to Jesus by faith, then even though you appear alive physically, you are dead spiritually. That there is no spiritual pulse, so to speak, dead in your sins. But here's the good news. This same author, John, in 1 John, says this, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Life. There is no life that can be found apart from him. And yet he graciously makes himself known to us that we can experience life in him. That's the good news. And yet it appears to us as rather counterintuitive. Because we look around and we see people who look very much alive and are not following Jesus. And you say, well, doesn't the Bible say that we're actually dead spiritually? It doesn't look like it. Which is why the life is so closely connected with the light. You see it in verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, for us to actually see clearly on these matters, for us to actually see reality as it really is, we need the light to shine forth. We need to see the light, to discern the true state of how things really are in our world. We need a light to see that even though people live, maybe you and I, even though we live as, as physically alive, that if we don't trust in Jesus, we are actually spiritually dead and in need of the life. We need the light to see this. And so we read in verse five that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Jesus is the light and he shines forth into the darkness of a sinful world and the darkness does not win. The word translated here, overcome. If you have ESV, it's overcome. Some of your translations might say something like understood or grasped it. So the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. And linguistically, it could be either one of those. It could be understood or overcome. And you say, well, which one is it? And I'll take maybe the easy way out, but let me tell you, yes, it's both. In fact, I think the reason John uses a term that could uh, be a little ambiguous of meaning either of them is intended to say, yes, it's all of that. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it, but neither has the darkness overcome it. The darkness has not won, but also the darkness has not understood what it is in front of them. See, later in our text, we see that he came into the world, and yet the world did not know him, that the darkness has not understood the light, because the only way that you and I can actually understand the light that is shining forth is for us to actually believe in Christ. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of the night, and Jesus says to him that those who are walking in sin love the darkness rather than the light. And what we need is to be born again, a creative work of God, 
so that we see the light and find life in Christ. See, salvation is a creative miracle. Second Corinthians says this, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, just as God at creation said, let there be light, and there was light, so too does God show up still today and say, let there be light, and you and I see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and behold his glory and believe. It's a creative miracle that God continues to work today, and God says, let there be light, and the light shines in the darkness, even the darkness that has not understood it, and the darkness does not win, and people are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. The light is strong enough that even those who are entrenched in spiritual darkness, firm rebellion, will see the light and believe in him. You know this when you have a room at home that is completely pitch black and uh, all the lights are off. You know that even the faintest glimmer of light can be enough to keep you up at night when you're trying to sleep. Just one little faint light. You're trying to, trying to go to bed, you're, all the lights are off, you're trying to fall asleep, and there's one little light. Maybe it's from your phone screen, maybe it's a night light, a clock, whatever it is, and it feels like the glory of a thousand angels has just appeared in your room and it's blinded you and you can't see. Just a little bit of light shining in the darkness. The darkness is not stronger than the light. See, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it, but the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Because just as that little glimmer of light is enough to frustrate you in the middle of the night, so too is it enough to comfort a child who's terrified of the dark. Someone who's terrified of the darkness, so too that little light is enough to provide immense comfort. Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not win. And John wants us to know this as we are reading through this gospel account because he wants us to know that no matter what they do to this Jesus, they will not win. They can kill him and they will not win. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not prove victorious. The light is more powerful than the dark. When Christ shines this light, there is nothing you and I can do to stop it. Now, we can, we can try to, to kind of cut ourselves off from the light. We can choose to hide ourselves from it, but we can do nothing to actually dim that light. So again, think about you're at home and you're trying to kind of get the, the house as dark as possible. Let's say you're wanting to watch the latest episode of The Mandalorian. And so you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to kind of cover all the blinds and kind of get everything in. I'm gonna try to keep the light from coming out. They're coming in. And you might very well be able to block yourself from the light. But do you know what you have not done? You have not for even a second dimmed the light of the sun. You haven't changed the sun's light. You've just tried to hide yourself from it. And friends, the most that we can do as the light shines into the darkness, the most that we can do is try to hide ourselves from it. But we can do nothing to actually snuff out the light itself. Jesus Christ is the light and he shines into the darkness and the darkness does not prove victorious. That's the good news of John chapter one. We need to believe it. And we need to get this deep into our beings. We need to stand on this, cling to this. It's the bedrock for our souls because, friends, there looks to be a lot of darkness in our world today, as there has been ever since Eden. So every week, there's another mass shooting in our country. Every week, there's another natural disaster that comes across our headlines. 
every week there's another danger that we should be worried about and another concern that seems to be creeping into our minds. And we read stories of horrific evil and abuse. We read stories of death and of tragedy. We read stories of heartbreak and of despair. We know loved ones who get sick with cancer. We become way too familiar with funerals. And we know people who are living in constant pain and fear. It's easy to look around you and think the darkness looks to be winning. It looks like the darkness has the upper hand. But the light shines forth in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness, friends, does not have the final word. The light is powerful enough to put an end to the deeds of darkness in our world and the light is powerful enough to put an end to the deeds of darkness that we see lurking in our hearts as well. See, the evil around us will not win. The evil within us will not prove victorious. The tragedy that you see in life is not stronger than the light and the sin that you are fighting that seems so unbeatable, those areas of darkness in your own heart are not stronger than the light because when the light shines in the darkness, the darkness doesn't come out ahead. The darkness is defeated and driven away. Jesus Christ is the light of the world and even a little bit of light is enough to turn the tide on the war of darkness. And that is why John the Baptist comes. John comes along because he wants to tell people about that light. John emerges onto the scene out of a dark world, a spiritually dark, dead world. And he comes with a message of hope. Verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, a different John than the one who wrote this book. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This John, the Baptist, was the last prophet under the Old Covenant. He was the one who was promised long before to come and, 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 and proclaim the way of the Messiah. And yet John is very clear at saying, listen, I'm not the point. In fact, in a few weeks, we'll see even clearer how John says, listen, don't look at me, look at him. John is not the point, but he is one who can point to the one who is the light of the world. He is one who can point and say, look to him and you will have life. Look to him. I'm going to point you to him. And how much can we learn from this too? How, how often do we want to draw the attention to ourselves? Want to point people to us. Look at me. Look at me. And John says, no, no, no look at Jesus. Don't look at me. I'm not the point. I'm not the point. When the prophet comes, don't look at the, oh, wow, the prophet's here. Listen to what he's saying. Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. And friends, you and I can do the same thing in our lives. Because just a little bit of light is enough to drive out the darkness. In our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, with friends and family members, how can we live as testament, uh, uh, testifying to the light? And say, no, 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 it's not about me, it's about him. Let me point you to him. How can we be people who point one another to the light of the world? Even a little bit of light is enough to illuminate a dark space. John was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. But, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's a fifth takeaway we learn about the word in our text. This word's not directly given here, but I think it summarizes what we see, and it's that he is the savior. 
The word is Savior. He is God. He is creator. He is life. He is light. And he is Savior. The true light was coming into the world. We'll pick that up next week. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But he was in the world, and the world was made through him, reminding us he's the one who made the world that he's now living in. And here's the stunner. Yet the world did not know him. He came into the world to offer the light of the gospel to all who would believe, Jew and Gentile alike. And yet perhaps the most stunning twist for those, who, for those of us who have, who have been walking through these opening verses and seeing who the word really is, we read, well, he came into the world. Okay, that's stunning enough. And when he came into the world, guess what? They rejected him. They didn't know him. They didn't notice that it was even him. The creator came to live with his creation, and the creation didn't even notice it. In fact, they went one step further, and they said, we don't believe you. We don't need you. We're going to reject you. It's like, imagine you go to an author, and you, uh, you hold up their book, and you say, man, have you ever read this book? This is great. You should read this, not knowing they're the ones who wrote it. Or it's like you go to, you use some product and you go to the inventor of that product and you say, man, this is great, it's life changing, you should check this out sometime. Not knowing they're the one who patented it. That's what's happening right here. The, the, the creator of the world is now in the world and they don't even notice it. They don't even see him, they don't embrace him, they don't, they, they reject him. And it's even crazier because we, we go one step further and you say, and he came to his own, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In other words, those who of all people should have been the ones to notice this, those who of all people should have been the ones to receive him and embrace him, they are the ones who rejected him. It's stunning when we think about it. He came into the world and the world didn't receive him. They rejected him. And yet, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, okay, there were some who believed, and to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what's in view here. Believe in him and receive him. Believe and receive and you will be saved. Believe in him as Lord and Savior. Receive him into your life and you will be, brought, you will be given the right to become a child of God, adopted as sons and daughters of God most high. It's amazing that all who come to him and confess our need as sinners, dead in our sins, we find Jesus to be the life that we so desperately need. To all who come to him and say, we are in darkness spiritually, we find him to be the light of the world who reconciles sinners to himself. We find him to be the savior of our souls. To all who did believe in him, to all who did receive him, Question for you, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Are you believing in him today? Have you received him by faith? Bring your sins and lay it before him. Confess, Lord, there's nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We come to Jesus and find that he is ready to forgive as we receive him and are given the right to become children of God. And you can do this by faith. But you must recognize that this is a work of God who brings you to himself. 
So he gives the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You're born, no, not born of blood, meaning it's not your bloodline that saves you. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, hey, you know what? You're kind of counting on the faith of your parents, the faith of grandma who, man, she, she, she believed in Jesus. I'm just trying to live up to that, that, that kind of standard she set. Your bloodline, your relative, your family does not save you. It is simply faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves you. Others of you might be saying, I'm, I'm kind of resting in what I can do, the work of my hands. But not only are you not born of blood, you are not born of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. Let me ask you something. How much did you have to do with your physical birth? And the answer, of course, is nothing. And John has sent us right. And spiritually, guess what? It's all of God. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. It is God who saves us and God alone. As a friend, if you sense God working in your heart today, trust him, embrace him by faith. It is God who has begun to work in you. If you are, and so receive him and trust in him as savior. It does not happen according to your bloodline. It does not happen according to your family. It does not happen according to the work of your hands or whatever you can do to labor. It's not the will of man. It is the will of God who has determined to save for himself a people through this word, the, the Lord Christ who came into the earth to save sinners, to save those who are dead, to save those who are in darkness and to bring them through the life and the light to become children of God. Sons and daughters, we can know him. So this text really confronts us with two options. There is the option that uh, many people on earth took. They did not receive him, they rejected him. And yet there's a better option, to receive him as savior by faith, to trust in him to find him ready to forgive, full of grace and mercy, and you will find that in him and in him alone, there is life. And so the call for this text, friends, the call that John is, is pleading with you to make, the call that I am pleading with you to make is to say, you know, believe in him, receive him as savior, and then rejoice in him as the Lord God who is worthy of our worship. The Lord God who is the eternal word. The mighty creator the source of all life, the most brilliant of all lights, and the most gracious and glorious of saviors. To believe in him, to receive him, and to rejoice in him. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, which bears witness about the word, our Lord Jesus. And Lord, we see in this text, we are confronted with a glorious picture of our Savior, Jesus. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would cause us to see him as he really is and to believe. 
Lord, I pray for those who have not received Jesus by faith, that you would work to bring them to yourself, that you would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the gospel and the face of Jesus Christ into their hearts that they would believe. And Lord, I pray for those who are trusting in him and are clinging to Jesus by faith. Lord, I pray you would strengthen them to behold your glory and to worship you as worthy of our worship and as greater and more glorious than we ever imagined and that we ever even hoped. May we find life in you. May we experience the joy that comes from following after you, the life that is found only in you. And may we rejoice in you as our Lord and our Savior. And thank you that you have brought us and called us children, that you have adopted us as sons and as daughters, and that you treat us not as we deserve in our sin, but you treat us as Christ deserves in his perfection. And Lord, we thank you that you have graciously allowed us to know you, caused us to know you. We give you all the praise for it. So Lord, we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, and for Jesus Christ, amen.